It all started in the 80s and carried into the early 90s, from our teen years to college. The origins of the creative muse, when our eyes were open to original voices in music, film, and literature. It's where we began to understand the possibilities of artistic expression, from spoken word to hip hop, from avant-garde to punk rock, books, films, and songs that inspired us. I'm Kim Selby, and for as long as I can remember, I've been an avid consumer of film, music, and literature. I'll go to the ends of the earth to find those original gems that move and entertain me. I'm also the producer of this podcast. And I am author T. Riley. My writing can be dark, surreal, off the wall, and out there. There's a list of visionaries from all sorts of disciplines I credit to helping me find my voice. We're going to take a look backward at where it all began for the both of us, how it shaped our taste today, and how we create. So let's get started. So... Tom, it feels like these first handful of episodes we've recorded, we've been focusing a lot on what was going on around us. And I thought this time it might be a good time to maybe dig in a little bit deeper on, you know, one particular topic. So what do you think of that? Sure. Okay. And thinking that you're the published author here, I'm more of the dabbler. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, maybe one or two books, if it's one, you know, that's great. You know, one book that you found to be the, either the most influential that led you down the path of being a writer or one of the most influential. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I think that might be a good conversation and a good way to shake this up a little bit and get dig a little deeper into one particular topic. No, and I, I think I can do this one pretty easily. I don't, I think if you would have asked me the, the pivotal song or film, I'm not sure I could do that. Book I can do though. Yeah. Okay. Good. And just not to confuse it with some of other our other discussions, so I don't look like I'm crazy and I'm going in all different directions. We, we did, you know, we, we did talk about some early, early influences in one of the past episodes and, and I, I had brought up Poe. Right. Alan Poe, that is, and how I was a, a, a kid who, who struggled with reading early on, and, and yet I found someone who, who was not, a, not an easy person to, to get through, but somebody who, who opened the door for me, the possibilities of, of what literature could do, and, and, um, and Poe certainly stuck with me, and to this day, I still read him, and I still hold him as... as one of my biggest influences and one of the you know, greatest writers of, of all time, in my opinion. You look at one single book uh, around the same time um, and also a writer in a book that, that, that wasn't an easy reader. So interesting for somebody with, with challenging, with having some challenges with reading that I'm, these are the ones that I'm forcing myself to, to look at, was, uh, was something wicked this way comes. Okay. Ray Bradbury. Uh, right. Throughout my life, read a lot of his work. Another you know, classic writer who will will remain in in the books is is one of the greats. Um, 
this this book was and he's known for writing a lot of different genres but he's probably most known for sci-fi i think this would fall more into literary fantasy um and it it centers on two young boys uh, who when i first found this were around my age so uh not from the same time period of course um right. but uh but it meant it meant a lot to me for a couple of reasons um the the first being that it it deals with that sort of surreal otherworldly fantastical element and mm-hmm. i keep saying it that's the style of writing that i write and it was dark and there there were there were few books that were accessible to me right at that time especially with the reading challenges that that were as dark as as this one and and at the same time dealt with kids that were my age right um that that was a a huge eye-opener and the other reason why it was um it was so important for me was was one of the two main characters and that was jim nightshade so he's obviously <laughs> you can get by his last name, you know what what part he plays in in the story a little bit, but but they're two best friends that have been friends since they were little kids, and and Jim is is um, someone who's who's just really attracted to the dark mm-hmm. and um, the night and the shadows, and and always kind of pushing his 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 friend William to um, to take bigger chances and. And, and get closer to that that dark and mysterious element. So that was totally me at that age, and it continues to be something that that I I look at from a from a fictional stance. But he was, also was a kid who desired deeply to get out of his boy skin and grow up, and that's a big part of the story. I'm sure. A lot of people who are listening to this have read it, and, they, and if they haven't, they they should. Um, and and I I was uh, I was a kid who was never satisfied with the age that I was. I, I've mentioned before in other episodes. I always hung out with older kids, and um, I, I'm at the point in my life now where <laughs> I want to do the reverse. But... Okay, I was just going to say now we're at the point where we're we're. Uh thinking in terms of reversing that number. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I wrote a, I wrote a, a, a review on Goodreads about this and I, I use the word review because that's what they call it on Goodreads. I, I don't write reviews. I'm not a critic. I only write about books on Goodreads that, that mean a lot to me and have influenced my writing. So they're not reviews, they're tributes. Um, but I, I had written a tribute recently and, and talked about how how important it was to me and and how important it still is and and i guess that's the the other amazing aspect of of good literature how it can how it can take on different faces depending on who you are at any given moment and the story has two characters in it one jim nightshade who desperately wants to to grow up and and then william's father who desperately wants to find youth and um Hmm. it's amazing how much i identified with jim nightshade when i was a kid and how i I read it recently and and uh i found myself much more identifying with with the father obviously that's um that's a twist for sure right so without the sound i I don't mean to turn this into an an interview more than a conversation (laughs) 
Well, I, and you've read this too, right? So uh, please- no, I have, and it's been quite a long time that it feels like I'm hearing about it again for the first time. Okay. I, um, it's funny. I have a 15 year old niece who's a sophomore in high school and she's reading Fahrenheit 51 right now. And I picked it up, um, it was over their house uh, a week or so ago and I was slipping through it. And she has on maybe every other page post-it notes just tucked into the book. And I wanted to ask her, you know, are you doing this because it's a project? Do you have a book report? Like, why do you have all these post-it notes? So it's, it, it's that age, um, you know, obviously Fahrenheit 451 is usually on an English reading list for high school. Yeah. But um, I just, it's the timing of, you know, you talking about this book because I just had one of his other books in my hand a week ago. Wow. And that's an amazing book too. That's yeah. Amazing. That, I, that I've read, that I remember. Um, this one I don't, but we'll add it back to my reread list. But again, not to act like an interview more than a conversation, you know, you talking about your struggles with reading and not being the easiest of readers. How did you find this book? Was it assigned to you? Were you, was it from an English class? Did you pick it up in a library? How did you, how did you find it? So I I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Which is funny because (laughs) I seem to recount so many things. Right. um, Whether it's a real memory or not, but like we talked about Poe. I mean, that definitely was writ was read in a, in a, in a class in middle school and, um, or even it could have been fifth grade, to be honest with you. But no, I don't, I don't remember where I got it. I'll tell you how I got exposed to it first. Yeah. And, um, but now, not how I found the book. So there, there is a movie that is actually, I believe, produced by Disney. Again, I'm making up things, maybe. Right, of course. Check me. Okay, um, I'm going to check you right now. Okay. I'm going to get my Google out. And I saw that first. And, and, and it's a really fun movie. As a, as a kid, I, I found it really interesting, even though I had seen stuff that was more grown up, if you will, dark and horror stuff. There was something about this story that really attracted me. It's a fun movie. It's not a great movie. And it certainly does not do it justice. Mm-hmm. The and there have been there's been talk for years of uh, other people remaking that, that right. movie. And it's just never come to fruition, to my right. knowledge unless it's out there. But that is what attracted me to it and then found the book. And I, I, I'm not one of those people who constantly says the book was so much better than the movie. Movies are interpretations of books. Movies right. aren't supposed to be exactly what a book is. So I, I am perfectly fine saying a book is great and a movie's great. This movie just happens to be not that, that amazing. It's fun. Again, it's fun. And it is what attracted me when I was a kid. But yeah, but in terms of how I got it in my hands. Yeah, you don't know. I'm fairly certain it wasn't a class. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, though. That's how you came to it. Then you saw the movie and you, you know, went, I don't want to call it the backwards route, but I think that that's, you know, a good way to find whether it, whether you go from the book to the movie, which people are always, always seem to be a little bit disappointed in, especially if you are someone who has a book that they love and when it gets made into a movie it's never quite you know done right so to see it go the opposite way and to have the movie spur you to pick up the book which in turn became such a big part of your writing life I don't know it's uh I like to hear about those backwards it's like yeah to this day it was it was really important for me as a kid I've said it for years and I still say it now because I I can't I can't judge my own work to know where it stands. And I, I go by the feedback that I get, but 
but just generally speaking, I, I have always said, if I can write something even once that is, that is, is as profound and darkly beautiful, as impactful as something wicked, then I, I don't need to write anything else. Profoundly dark and beautiful. I like that. If I, if I could do one, I'd never have to write again. Right. I, I actually wrote down something else you said a few episodes back that I wrote down that um, felt like a good tagline to remember. I'll have to go back and dig it up. But let me, um, I have my trusted Wikipedia page open right now, and I want to read you the first sentence of the plot summary section of this Something Wicked This Way Comes Wikipedia page. And it starts, the novel opens on an overcast October 23rd. Now, what are the chances that the first sentence in the description of the book that you are claiming to be the most influential book as a writer has the word that is now the title of your short story collection? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I wonder if they got that from the jacket or that is. Isn't that weird? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's again, we've from time to time, talk about, talked about things coming full circle. Mm -hmm. I think this is another full circle moment. So what about you? Yeah, I, um, I don't know that I can pinpoint one particular book that opened the gateway or the door or, you know, set me down a path of wanting to read more or consume more art or more media. But what I can say is, Three or four books that I'll speak to all have similar, not really structures, but just things about them that are so similar that that is what I'm taking away as the influence. I'm going to run down these pretty quickly. The first I've, is a book that I've mentioned before, which is The Talisman, which is written by Stephen King and Peter Straub. The second one is The Witching Hour, which is the first in the trilogy of witch stories by Anne Rice. The third is a book called Weave World by Clive Barker. And the fourth is the Flowers in the Attic series by V.C. Andrews, which is actually a series of five books, four of which are a, story, a continuing story. And the fifth book is a, a prelude, precursor, prequel to the, to the first four books. And what I realized about all of them were, you know, you mentioned Something Wicked being dif a difficult read. All of these books, maybe except for the Flowers in the Attic series, are long and laborious at times and take a, a commitment to get through. They're all fantasy slash horror slash supernatural worlds, different worlds, multiverses, uh, multi-generational families and events that have affected them for generations. You know, something about that, I don't want to call it a genre because it's not a genre, but something about that reading experience is what I have been drawn to and what I think excites me about consuming media where you just, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief, you have to dive in and you you have to, you become immersed in these worlds. And I think that that, you know, from me coming from this consumer perspective, it hooks me every time. And these are books that I've read multiple times. 
the witching hour. It's a, a you know tr a trilogy of witches in New Orleans that they their powers have been transferred and directed by the supernatural creature who has come from who knows where and has just you know wreaked havoc in their lives. And it it's a fascinating story. Weave World is probably one of the most bizarre books I've ever read in my entire life. It is a book that, how do I describe this? It's a book about a universe that lives within a tapestry. And the tapestry is being protected by a group of people because they know of its powers. But there is a literal world going on inside this tapestry, which is why it's called Weave World. I, I, I can't even... I. It's so hard to describe that I'm not going to try, but it's one of the most difficult but fascinating, satisfactory books. Like when I finished this book, I knew that I had accomplished something. Um, you know, I've talked about the talisman. I'm not going to go too deep into it. Um, you know, universes flipping series of characters that exist in one world and they have mirror images of themselves in this opposite world. And then Flowers in the Attic, I think, you know, that's, pretty self-explanatory a story of a family thrown um the father dies the mom takes the kids back to the her parents glacial home and the kids are hidden up in the attic and it just is not a great it's not a great situation for anybody but anybody any I don't want to become gender specific with this book but if you were a girl growing up in the 80s you have read these books yeah well I I will say so I read yeah. one of those books but I've read all of those authors. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting you say that about Clive Barker, though. But how did, how did you find him? I'm just curious. And when did you find him? Um, I don't know when I found him, but I remember when I read it because I was, it was probably 1994 that I read it because I was on a road trip with my father from Vancouver down to San Francisco and that was the book that I was reading on that trip. So that's the only reason why I know when I was reading it. I'm not sure how I picked it up. I, I was, I mean, I just was an insatiable reader back in my 20s. I wish I still had the um, the time to, to read as much as I did back then. But I'm sure I picked it up because I knew of Clive Barker. I, it sounded interesting. And I was already drawn to that fantasy alternate world content. Yeah. I, Clyde Barker is, is, um, I, I think he's an, he's a fantastic writer. Um, sometimes he falls into that, that horror style that I, I like scary. I'm not necessarily always on the graphic side of scary right. in right. terms of horror, but, uh, but it's worth reading. I mean, even if, you know, I, I guess the thing it's, it's always about good writing for me. And, and sometimes we use things as crutches and, and so gore graphic element and Clive Barker stuff never feels like a crutch because his writing is strong. It's, mm -hmm. it's just another element. And this um, is not, I've read a lot of those. Have you, and I don't remember, you know, over the top amount of gore in this because I'm not, I don't, I don't love that. You know, we've talked a lot about, horror movies we've talked a lot about um horror you know horror related topics i'm not one i don't love blood and guts so i don't remember this being over the top with the gore yeah i've never read that book I've, i mean i've read a, a lot of stuff 
Clive, Clive Barker is is playing into to one of our our other discussions. The, the how you know hanging with different groups and being open minded about um, different artists and diverse artists. How that has led me to to a very full and and rich art experience. I guess is the way that I would put it. But right. Clive Barker is the is. I believe, you know, looking at, at finding his books a little bit younger, you know, probably high school and then moving into college, he's the first openly gay author that I read. Okay. Um, and, and his work, I don't think he had, I don't think he, he started writing novels that, that would have um, explicitly gay characters until I think the mid nineties, but you know, there, there was nothing hidden in his writing. Hmm. not say not explicit but definitely nothing hidden in. and you know that's just another element of of choosing writers that just have a different perspective and, and experiencing that yeah i don't funny that you say that I, I don't think i ever knew that about him not that it makes a difference either way but just bringing up the point of different perspectives and people have lived different lives than you know maybe what is considered the norm I I didn't know that I'm glad that I know that and that's that's a book I read it once it's one of the only books on probably any of these lists that we might talk about at some point that I've only read once because I tend to reread books that I love I could I I've tried two or three other times to reread this. It's, I'm going to try it again. I just, it's probably one of the only books that I've loved that I've only read once. But knowing this and having that perspective, if I do wind up rereading it, I will look at it with a new lens. Yeah, um, I, I don't know that book. So it's not to say that, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just from a character standpoint. Yeah, that's, um, and he just recently passed away not too long ago, two or three years. And I will say you did touch on earlier um, about how you watched or uh, having watched something wicked before you read it. And I can't remember exactly what you said, but you touched on the fact that it might have been a difficult movie to make. What? Well, these three, three out of the four books that I just mentioned, The Witching Hour, Weave World and The Talisman, they're all books that I believe have tried to be made multiple times. And were never able to be made into movies for whatever reason. And I think the stories are so intricate and so convoluted and complex. I don't think people know how to make them into a movie. So to me, that's somehow this, you know, genre of reading experience that I tend to be drawn to, which is not easily translatable. And, you know, although, you know, you would love to see one of these on the screen at some point. I know Flowers in the Attic, they did TV. I think they did like TV movies. There was a film. There was a, there was a film. It was a film. Right. It was. It was something, but it wasn't good. <laughs> so, um, you're right. They were, they were made into movies, but. Um, yeah, some, some of Clive Barker's work was, and I agree with you, some of them, uh, it's tough to deal with the complexity of, of his uh his plot lines. Um, although, you know, what brought me to him was film, not, not novels. And that, that would be the, the Hellraiser. Right. Hellraiser is again, pretty gory movie, but, but absolutely fascinating. Right. Well, maybe he's not dead. Somebody died. Why did I think he passed away? Wheelchair or something for toxic 
shock syndrome for a little while. I wonder who I'm thinking of then, who um, is maybe a similar. No, he's 68, lives in Liverpool. Okay. Okay, I'm wrong. I just... We need to send an apology to him before this episode comes out. Okay, I will. Oh, you know, but they are, um, I think they are remaking Candyman. And that movie scared, scared me. But I think they're remaking Candyman. Yeah. yeah a lot of remakes these days. Yeah. yeah, I think that's just part of the whole... The, you know, the experience that I'm drawn to, I love, you know, if you're watching an HBO special or a Netflix special, the, the ones that just take you from, you know, one end of the world to the other and <laughs> rip you apart and put you back together as you get to the end of them, those are, those just are the, that's the type of stuff that I just love and can't get enough of. You know, I, I really liked hearing about your most influential book. But is there anything else you want to say about it? Or is there anything else that to close out this episode? Well, I, I think you need to read it because it's been a while and you don't remember it. Okay, fair. <laughs> I'll do that. Fair enough. I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted. Here comes the coda. Clive Barker, who was very much alive and still setting the creative world on fire, had a big scare in recent years that led to the usual unsubstantiated reports that are unfortunately all too common in our virtual universe. He was mistakenly reported to be dead. He continues to make his mark on modern culture as a truly original and accomplished voice. Barker is a prolific artist who not only produces stacks of exceptional work in one art form, he does it effortlessly, or seemingly so, across many art forms. A playwright, a novelist, a director, and visual artist, there are few creative outlets he has not pursued and conquered in striking, often dark, and macabre ways. The author's catalog includes 29 plays, a plethora of novels, novellas, and short story collections, graphic novels, and children's books. He is the father of Hellraiser, The Hellbound Heart, Candyman, Weave World, The Books of Blood, and Cabal. Barker is also known for his uniquely fantastical and often grim visual art. Ranging from sketches to oil paintings, the work of the writer-slash-artist, or artist-slash-writer, has been showcased in both his own books and in art exhibitions. If you're curious to see this other side of Barker, many of the paintings and sketches are available to view on his website, clivebarker.info. You can also find several YouTube videos where he talks about his approach to art. To quote him, my imagination is my pole star. I steer by that. Thanks for listening to Origins of the Muse. You can find out more about T at author-tryley.com. That's author-t-r-e-i-l-l-y.com. You can even read some of his work on his website. He's posted more than 75,000 words you can read for free. If you like what you hear on Origins of the Muse, you can hit the subscribe button and you can always rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts.